0: The gospel this morning is read from the gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter chapter 18, from verse 21 to 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him and who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children on all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the reading of God's word.
1: Thank you, OT. Well, it is my privilege to introduce this morning's guest preacher, Dr. Hans Menoweme. Uh, I've gotten to know uh, Hans over the last couple of years and different events we've been a part of and and, uh, am pleased and privileged to count him not only a a professional colleague, but, but a friend as well. He has a fascinating life story that I've gotten to know as we have interacted over the last couple of years, and I wish that he could share, uh, share it with you this morning. I like to think of his life stories captured in his name, Dr. Hans Mataweme. Actually, Dr. Dr. Hans Mataweme. Hans from, uh, uh, he was born actually in Sweden, hence the name Hans, but as you can tell, he doesn't exactly look Swedish. <laughs> born, born to Nigerian parents. Uh, his dad is a nuclear physicist who was doing research in Sweden at the time, and uh, so grew up in a, uh, a scientist's home, went to McGill University and then Howard University and studied medicine, earned an, uh, an MD, and so became Dr. Hans Mataweme. But uh, when he was doing res- his residency at Mayo Clinic, he, uh, the Lord did a unique work in his heart, and uh, Uh, he uh, led him to study, of all things, theology. And so he stepped out of his medical, the medical track that he was in, and uh, enrolled at Trinity Seminary and did an MA and an MDiv and then a PhD uh, at Trinity Seminary. And so he is Dr. Dr. Hans Mattawemeh. A unique combination of medical science background and uh, theology training and resourcing as well. And so he has been really very well equipped and been used by the Lord in his research and his writing to speak to the interface of science and theology. He teaches at Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, married to Shelley. They have two kids with beautiful biblical names, Caleb and Zoe. We uh, invited him to be one of our plenary speakers this week at the Center for Pastor Theologians conference that is going to be on the doctrine of creation, which he has a specialty in. But we thought it would be great for him to come and share this morning on the beauty of the gospel from Matthew 18. So will you join me in welcoming Dr. Dr. Hans Meadowayman.
2: Uh, Thanks, Todd. Um, Great to be with you. I really enjoyed uh, fellowshipping with you all, first service and and now here. Um, Thank you for the warm welcome. So um, about uh, five years ago, my wife's parents uh, came to stay with us for a day or two. Uh, We live in uh, Flintstone, Georgia, close to Chattanooga. (laughs) Yabba-dabba-doo. <laughs> um, as you heard, my wife's name is Shelly, and uh, Shelly and I were planning to have dinner with some friends on a Saturday night, and her parents would babysit our, uh, at the time it was just our son, uh, while we were gone. And that evening, uh, Shelly was cooking something in the kitchen, and she'd gone into the bathroom to get herself ready for the, our dinner date. Uh, she'd been working hard all day, she was exhausted, but she was excited about the evening and our dinner plans. So I'm in the living room having a conversation with her parents, my in-laws, and then suddenly we all hear a loud, sizzling sound. I run, rush into the kitchen, and I see that the rice is boiling over. Uh, the control knob was on a four or five, and so I turn it down to simmer. Um, I go to the bedroom, I, t- I tell my wife, honey, you, the rice was boiling over. You forgot to turn it down. And then, next thing I know, she's denying that she did that. And she says, actually, I did put it on simmer. And, but as it turns out, there were two pots on the stove, and she had turned the wrong knob. So I try to correct her, I try to say something to her, and she snaps back at me. <laughs> so um, just I'll just be honest that I was that was hurtful, <laughs> uh, because I was in the right and she was wrong. <laughs> and in this kind of situation, when I feel that my wife has wronged me, I, do, I tend to get on the defensive. Um, and that might surprise you, because I'm a theology professor at Covenant College. And granted, Covenant theology professors are morally superior to moody Bible professors. (laughs) And we're morally superior to University of Reading PhD professors or pastors. And we're certainly morally superior to Cambridge PhD pastors. (laughs) But I must confess, in this scenario, I was not at my best. Um, I was getting ready to give her the silent treatment. You know, waiting for her to apologize. I, and that's a tendency I have sometimes. I'll, I'll nourish the bitterness inside. I'll nurture it, uh, cuddle it, and let it grow into resentment and anger. Because she had wronged me. I'd been in the right and she snapped at me completely on call for. Um, that was unjust. Maybe there's some men in the house who feel my pain. If you ask my in-laws who witnessed it, they'll tell you. If you ask the angels in heaven who witnessed it, (laughs) they'll tell you. I was in the right. Well, Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 to 15, kind of addresses this situation. It says, "Um, For if you forgive men... When they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. It's Interesting two verses. And I know probably the first time you heard that, a question popped into your mind. It sounds as if Jesus is saying that we earn God's forgiveness by forgiving others. Which doesn't quite... Sound right if we forgive others, then in return, God will forgive us. That sounds like a justification by works, as we just heard. It's the 500 year anniversary of the Reformation, your Calvary Memorial. You all are good evangelical Protestants, so you know we're justified by grace through faith, not by works, lest anyone should boast. So, what is Jesus saying in these two verses, Matthew 6? 14 to 15. How do we make sense of those two cryptic verses? Well, uh, th- thankfully, we do have an idea. There are some clues in Scripture, and Scripture actually answers that question for us later on in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35. And I want you to um, make sure you're um, in that chapter of the Bible. We heard the reading as well. Um, This is a wonderful, wonderful passage. It reminds us of the Reformation emphasis on justification by grace through faith. It's one of the great things that Martin Luther offered the church. He recovered the gospel, that we are justified by grace through faith. Those are sweet, sweet tidings that have set our hearts free, and that's what this passage in Matthew 18 is all about. I, um, in the interest of full disclosure, uh, you know, I think you, I'll let you know that this is actually a very difficult text. Um, we might even say it's a devastating text. Um, but in my defense, um, you know, Pastor Todd Wilson invited me to give this uh, sermon, and he, one of the things I remember him saying really clearly is that the people at my church, they like difficult texts. And so that's, that's, that's why I chose this passage. Um, so blame your pastor, I'm just a messenger. Um, so let, let's, let's pray as we get started. Please bow your heads with me. Lord, open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your law. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35. This is what God is telling us this morning. If you do not readily forgive others then you have not been transformed by the gospel. If you do not readily forgive others, then you have not been transformed by the gospel. I think that comes out clearly in this passage in three ways. It comes out in how God has treated us in how we tend to treat others, and in how the gospel transforms. All right, here's the scenario. Peter comes to Jesus with a question. If someone I know keeps sinning against me, how many times should I forgive him? Up to seven times, he asks. So just you need to understand, in Peter's Jewish tradition... That was a question that was often debated. And based on a few Old Testament passages, the rabbis had concluded, you know what? You can forgive someone three times, but no more. And the reason is that you could, you could have someone who is repeatedly sinning against you and they're not really serious about repenting. So you have to draw the line somewhere. Three um, sounds like a good number. So when Peter says seven times, he probably is thinking, I'm being super generous. You know, sort of the cliche, Mother Teresa, not three times, not five times, but seven times. Who's the man? Peter, (laughs) right? But Jesus responds with a, a stick of dynamite and explodes Peter's categories. Not seven times, brother but 77 times, and that is surprising, that is astonishing, that is shocking. Jesus is telling Peter, there is no limit to forgiveness. Peter, keep forgiving that person who is sinning against you, which if we're honest, is a bit of a bitter pill to swallow. And so Jesus sensibly tells a parable. So look with me at verses 23 to 27. He tells a story of a king, a king who's trying to collect his debts. He loaned out money to a number of his servants, and it's time to pay up. And one of those servants owes him 10,000 talents, a huge amount of money, an astronomical figure. Just to give you a picture, one talent was a significant amount of money. So now 10,000 talents, in some ways, it's not even in the realm of possibility. You wouldn't even dream about that kind of money because it's so excessive. Um, I'm Nigerian, as you heard. And uh, even if I was able to scam every single one in this church I pull this scam on all of you. Even if I was able to do that, I couldn't dream of so much money. (laughs) One commentary even says, quote, that a laborer would have to work 60 million days or roughly 193,000 years to earn this much money. So obviously, Jesus is using hyperbole. So we read this in verse 25. Since he was not able to pay... The master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. So the servant owes the king 10,000 talents. He can't pay back, so the king decides to get back his money by selling the servant and his entire family, which is fair. That's completely fair. That's completely just. No one should fault the king. Don't borrow money if you can't pay the person back. But then it gets interesting. The servant begs the king to be merciful. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything, which is baloney, right? We know that's not true. There's no way this servant is ever going to be able to pay back even a fraction of the amount. This is the definition of a lost cause. Kim Kardashian, trying to sound intelligent. (laughs) It is never going to happen. (laughs) This servant is in a hole that's impossible to get out of, period. And yet, and yet, the king does not act like we would expect. He does not do what we know he is fully justified in doing. If I were the king, I wouldn't even want to look at the servant, let alone hear his pitiful pleading. But this king, this king plays by a different set of rules. This king is an unusual character. In verse 27, we read, the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Wow. Wow. It was like a strong rope had been lowered into the pit. The servant must have thought that he was seeing a bright light shining in the darkness. The king had this unusual instinct to forgive the servant. He had every right to retrieve the debt that was owed him. He had every right. He was the king. So already this parable... Is taking us to the very heart of the gospel. Jesus is telling us we need to be like the king. We need to be like the king. This is a king who has an unusual, an uncanny instinct to forgive those who have wronged him. The servant servant owed billions of dollars, zillions of dollars, Just to contextualize for a bit, today, we would call him a college student. (laughs) He couldn't pay back. It was impossible. And yet, the king still forgave him. Listen, that's how God has treated us. Our sins against God are astronomical. There is no way we can earn our way back into God's favor. We can't pay him back. And yet, while we were still sinners, God forgave us. That's the point. Because the Father has forgiven us. If you do not readily forgive others, then you have not been transformed by the gospel. If you do not readily forgive others, then you have not been transformed by the gospel. Now, I know that, that still sounds a little edgy. Uh, so things do get much clearer in verses 28 to 30. Um, so the servant has just had his whole debt canceled. He's now in a happy, happy mood. He has escaped the day of disaster, the day of reckoning. His life can go on. He's walking down Main Street. He's got a bit of a strut. The sun is shining. The birds are chirping. All he needs is a cold drink, and life would be just grand. But guess who he sees just to mess up his day? A fellow servant who owes him some cash. Listen to the second half of verse 28, where it says, He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me. He demanded, "Whoa! Okay, so that's that's a bit excessive, but I think we get it." The other servant owes him money; you gotta pay up, right? The next scene, though, is deja vu. The other servant gets on his knees and he begs, promises that he will pay him back. Instead, the first servant, who had just been forgiven by the king, takes his fellow servant and throws him into prison. You ain't coming out until you pay me back the money you owe me with interest. Which, of course, is painfully ironic. The servant's behavior is completely incomprehensible. It's the opposite of what you'd expect any sane person to do. He owed the king millions, billions, zillions of dollars. And the king forgave him. This other servant, he owes him a hundred denarii, like a hundred days' wages. By comparison, this debt was peanuts, small change, pennies. So you'd think that the servant would forgive his fellow servant without a second thought. He would have canceled the debt. After all, that's what the king... That's what the king did with a far bigger amount that boggles the mind. But the servant does the opposite thing. Instead of showing grace, he meets out justice. And of course, we all want to condemn this guy, and rightly so. This behavior is shameful. It really is. It's shameful. But you know what's happening in this text. At this point in the parable, Jesus is kind of sticking it to us because that's how we act. That's how we often act toward each other. Our sins, remember, our sins are greater in number than the stars in the sky, and yet all of them have been forgiven by the Father. You have experienced the grace and the mercy of God. Then someone close to you treats you unfairly, says something you don't like, aggravates you, irritates you, annoys you, doesn't listen to you when you're talking. Can you imagine? Criticizes you unfairly. You want justice. You want what you deserve. Checkmate. Game over. What if God had given you justice? What if God had given you what you deserve? And that's the point, isn't it? We have experienced, that's an amazing thing, we have experienced God's grace, and strangely, we find it hard to extend grace to others. That, my friends, that is a fact that we need to grapple with this morning. Our typical behavior toward each other is shameful. So let's come back to me and my wife, Shelly. I confess that this is often my MO. I feel, if I feel she's wronged me, even in something a petty, something small, I want justice. I want her to pay me back exactly what she owes me with interest. Jesus is saying very clearly that my behavior is shameful. It is sinful. It is not befitting of someone who has been forgiven by God. That's what this passage is telling us. If you do not readily forgive others, then you have not been transformed by the gospel. If you do not readily forgive others, then you have not been transformed. By the gospel. Which brings us to the end of the parable. So you've got the other servants, and they witness all this going down, and they realize this is not right. So they go to the king, and they tell him everything that had happened. Right, I'm going to read again verses 32 to 35. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So the king, he immediately appraises the situation, and he appraises it rightly. He judges rightly. This first servant had a monumental debt wiped clean, removed, forgiven. But afterwards, he didn't show mercy. He didn't show grace to his fellow servant who owed him a few measly bucks. So the first servant wanted justice. And justice is exactly what he gets. He is put in jail and tortured until he can pay back all he owes. And that, my friends, is judgment. This is a word of judgment. Because ask yourself this question. What is the fate of this first servant? He had begged the king for mercy. He had asked and received forgiveness. But the whole thing was a scam. That first servant was unforgiving. The leopard spots, they hadn't changed. The dog returns to his vomit. If he had really been forgiven, if he had been transformed by his encounter with the king, then he would surely have forgiven his fellow servant. We're talking about the gospel. The gospel had not transformed this servant. He had not been transformed by God's grace. And I think... Um, I think we even get a glimpse of the greater judgment because the text says that the servant will be tortured until he pays back all that he owes. But remember, that debt was astronomical. That, that, that That was a huge amount. So you see what I think is happening? He's never, ever going to pay him back. He can't. It's too much. In other words, that first servant was condemned to hell to suffer forever and ever. That is what awaits all of us who haven't been transformed by the gospel and who haven't received the forgiveness of sins. And so I think right here, I think here is the clue how we should understand Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 to 15. Let me read that again. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Here's what I think Jesus is saying. If we are Christians and we are quick to forgive, then we know that God has already forgiven us of our sins. We are acting like the Father because he transformed us to be like him. But if we are not quick to forgive, if we are not forgiving people, then there's a danger that we have not been converted. Our hearts have not changed. Uh, so in other words, that passage is not a justification by works, as if God's forgiveness is dependent on our forgiveness. I think it's the opposite if you do not readily forgive others, then you have not been transformed by the gospel. If you do not readily forgive others, then you have not been transformed by the gospel. It's why, it's, it's why I sort of I made sure I gave you a caveat at the beginning of the sermon. This is a passage that exposes all of us. Our souls are naked before God, and so we can only react like Job. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, I know what you're thinking, um, if you're processing so far, and and you are right. Um, We are inconsistent as believers. Uh, Even though we have been transformed by God, we don't always act like we should. We're still works in progress. That old nature still finds a way of dragging us down. Even though we have been transformed by the gospel, we don't always live that out as we should. We are inconsistent. So you're right, that is true. But I don't think you should let that truth, I don't think you should think that truth can allow you to escape what this passage is saying. You can't dodge this bullet. We're not in the matrix, you're not Neo and there are no CGI effects this morning. God is speaking to you directly today. It's a fatherly warning. It's a reality check. What kind of people are we? Are we like our Father in heaven? Oh, God forbid, are we more children of the devil if you do not readily forgive others? then you have not been transformed by the gospel. Someone may have wronged you. Someone may have hurt you. Someone may have damaged you. Right? If, 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 we knew, if, if we knew all the stories of pain and suffering just in this one church, I think we'd all be weeping inconsolably. And yet, and yet, Jesus is saying to you that you should forgive that person. In his book, The Mark of a Christian, Francis Schaeffer who founded the Labrie Fellowship that some of you may know about. Francis Schaefer reminds us that a forgiving heart is the sign of a true believer. Listen to what he says. We hardly think once in a year about our lack of a forgiving heart in relationship to God's forgiving us. Many Christians rarely or never seem to connect their own lack of reality of fellowship with God with their lack of forgiveness to men. And then he goes on to say, we are to have a forgiving spirit even before the other person expresses regret for his wrong, even without the other man having made the first step. Whoa, that's a tough one. What would such forgiveness look like? I think Schaeffer's saying your attitude towards the offending person sh- should be one of love. Genuine love, in spite of what that person has done, you have forgiven him. You're not secretly wishing any ill on the person. There's no bitterness. Um, You don't hold it against the person. I, I, I want us to just be very, very clear. This is humanly impossible. But it is the power of the gospel. It is the gospel that transforms us. The power of the gospel is supernatural. We cannot do this in our own strength. It is the power from above that enables us to be and to do like the Father and the Son in the power of the Spirit. I also want to say this. I want to emphasize that forgiveness and rebuilding trust are two separate issues. By God's grace, I might forgive someone something horrible that they did to me, but that doesn't mean that they've gained my trust or they've regained my trust. Rebuilding trust, that may never happen, or it might take a very, very long time. But in our passage, God is calling us to be people who are always ready to forgive as our Father has forgiven us. So in case you're wondering, uh, my wife and I did go to dinner that evening. (laughs) Now, I would normally have given her the cold shoulder, you know, acting like a mute, grunting every now and then, but not saying anything. Uh, But I'd been reading this passage. And so we got out of the car. As we walked down the sidewalk, I took her hand, and we walked the whole way holding hands which may not sound like that big a deal but trust me, that was somewhat out of character for me. Uh, Shelly knows that I'm not a big fan of holding hands in public um, and to the women who are rolling their eyes, I know I've got issues about <laughs> that <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, that evening I set aside my issues and I held her hand. It was my way of saying I don't hold that against you. So that was a small thing. Give a a brother a break. (laughs) But if the gospel has transformed us, we can expect far greater testimonies because it's not about us. It's the power of God. So picture a young white woman in South Africa Her name is Jillian Chermbrooker, and she's 18 years old. She's a member of the Anglican Congregation of St. James Church in Cape Town. It's it's a Sunday, July 25, 1993. She's at the evening service, worshiping God with fellow believers. At that time, apartheid was in the process of being abolished in South Africa. But there were men from the Azanian People's Liberation Army who had been instructed to attack that church. And that's because in their minds, white people were using churches to oppress blacks. So that same evening, these men entered the church and they tossed grenades into the sanctuary. And they then opened fire with our four assault rifles. 11 people were killed, 58 or so were wounded. And they had, um, they, 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 just did the worst. They took the grenades, and they taped nails um, to the grenades. So it, it was horrible. There was blood everywhere. Uh, the blast from one of the grenades tore the flesh from Jillian's legs. Exploding shrapnel got into her heart, and then one of the nails punctured uh, her lung. And She ended up needing 50, five zero hours of surgery. It took her over five months to recover She's a believer, and during her recovery, the Lord Jesus was doing a work on her heart. And after that whole experience, she decided to go to medical school, and that was where she met one of my colleagues um, while he was living in South Africa. She had completely forgiven the man who had done this to her. She held no bitterness against him. She had even met him in prison and talked to him. And if you can believe this, after her medical training, she went back to do free community health work in the same townships where those criminals were from. Surely that is the supernatural work of God's grace. Today she is the head of the pediatric unit at Victoria Hospital in Cape Town. And it's true, there is no way There is no way she could have done this in her own strength. It is the power of God that had transformed her. She said God had forgiven her. And so she could not help but forgive those men. And I think that should lead us to pray to the Lord to, 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 that we repent of the ways in which our lives have denied the gospel that saved us, and, and that, Lord, your people here at Calvary Memorial would be men and women who readily forgive others because your gospel has transformed us. But for some of you, uh, the pain, the pain is too great, and you're not yet ready to forgive you know it's the right thing to do, but it's just too difficult. And and that and I get that. But I would at least pray that the Lord, you know, that I would at least ask you to pray that the Lord would make you willing to forgive. At least offer that prayer, make me willing, O oh Lord. Because it is God who enables us to do what seems Humanly impossible. And so I think this passage just displays the loveliness of Christ. The light of the world, the beauty of the gospel. The Father has drawn us sinners to his Son. The Holy Spirit has transformed us by the power of the gospel and continues to do so. Indeed, those of us who know Jesus in a saving way are being changed day by day. And it is is a remarkable thing. The Lord is writing a beautiful story with our lives. By his grace, we are slowly becoming more and more like our Father in heaven. And that is the kindness of God. That is the goodness of God. That is the generosity of God. He has forgiven us, so we cannot help. We can't help but forgive others. Our gaze is on the Lord Jesus. Jesus, whose name, the name above all names, is blessed forever and ever. Amen.